join me, we are reading out of Titus this morning, starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we come before you this morning, and once again, we thank you that we have this opportunity to worship you and praise you because you are good. And Lord, what an honor it is to be a mom, so grateful with so many joys and so many blessings. But it's also difficult. And so Lord, we thank you for the strength that you give us, the wisdom that you give us, and the perseverance. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you that you sacrificed your son for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, We should enjoy this holiday while it lasts. Uh, I hope it's a good day for you, Um, but it can be a mixed holiday. You know, Kara prayed about that. Kirk talked about that. So I hope today will be an encouragement if that's what you need. Uh, salve to a wound, if that's what you need, uh, an occasion to remember and honor uh, somebody, if that's what you need. So that's my hope, but I, I have a deeper hope, and it's this, it's that the Lord will be at the center regardless. So maybe you come with a lot of sorrow and your, your heart is all over the place. Maybe you come with a lot of joy. Uh, maybe you're just slogging through, or maybe this is uh, an easy season. But my deeper hope is that regardless of where you are, whether it's sun or rain or or whatever, that the Lord is at the center for you. Because it's the gospel that tells us who we are. Though a sinner, you're loved by God and you are brought to Him by the work of Jesus through the cross to spend eternity with Him in joy. That's That's our calling. This is central and it informs the rest, whether sorrow, rejoicing, or whatever. So may you know the kindnesses of God. As we look at the passage, there are, it's pretty obvious I should make some comments at the outset of that. Let me offer three. Three little notes to begin before we look into the text in earnest. One is on the context. This book, Titus, is about these planted churches, these not-there-yet churches, and where they need to go. And they're, it's set on the island of Crete, it's a pretty rough place, kind of a party area and all of that. And the question is, in a context like theirs, what's a church supposed to look like? Who are we supposed to be as the people of God, uh, bearing Jesus' light? And so the context is kind of the makeup of the church. And so what Paul does in this section is while he's, he's addressed elders and kind of the, a false version that can creep in, and the glories of the gospel and its effects later... He addresses all these different people in the church. Titus, this is what you're to be like before. This is what an elder is to be. Uh, Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Be like this. Uh, Women are obviously important in the church, like roughly half the population, and so he addresses uh, them. So great for that. That's the context, though. What are we supposed to be? Look at us, and what are we supposed to be? Another note is on the cultural differences between them and us. 
Very easy to sort of uh, look at where they are and either say that we ought to transport ourselves back 2,000 years or just see them as archaic. It's not helpful. The passage is relevant regardless of time and place, but the differences can help us make, let's call it a fairer comparison between them and us. Let me give you two real differences. One, uh, women then did not work outside the home. They didn't have all the modern amenities. And so if you were going to create a family, you were going to start a family, and you had a child together, for that child to live, somebody had to stay home. Okay. Now, between the two people, one of them could feed that child from her body, and the other couldn't. Who should go to work and who should stay home? It's a little blunt way of saying it. But like I said, they didn't have all the modern amenities that we do. And so we might look back and go, oh, they couldn't. They weren't allowed to. But if you were going to have a family... You just couldn't survive. Uh, there were biological reasons that, that bound that up that weren't cultural. They were just realities, realities of biology and economics. The other thing is that their marriages were arranged. Uh, they didn't have somebody, they, they weren't allowed to pick their love, somebody picked their love for them. Uh, you might think that's archaic or bad. It's probably better just to see it as different um, that since our way isn't producing like super results, maybe a little humility is in order at this point. But the point is, if you think about this, if your marriage was arranged, you didn't just go into it with love, right? Not automatically. I can remember in this very building, the day I was married, and so we did the thing where we had our pictures taken before, so the first time I saw the bride the day of the wedding was not when she walked down the aisle, it was before we got our pictures taken, you know, because that's the way it worked. Anyway, I remember they cleared out so that it would just be Kara and me, and she just like came into the back of this very room, and I remember I did this thing, I did like that, right? Like, whoa. Um, I, I already loved Kara. I knew her. But back then, the, if it came at all, was going to come later. It was something that you had to learn. As a matter of fact, that shows up uh, in this passage that we look at. So love is a choice you make. But that's, so a note on the context, this is Crete and these developing churches and this little part of it, Paul is addressing the women, there are cultural differences between them and us and we should respect that. But the third note that I should make is on the awkwardness of the position I find myself in with this particular passage. See, Paul lists two categories of women, only two, younger and older and I get the honor of telling you which category you fall into. <laughs> I mean, what, what, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, let's pray. Let's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what this passage is, is about, is it's about virtue in the Christian woman. This is a, a word to women in the church, and there are going to be three things that I want to share. I don't want you to panic. The first is by far the longest point, but three things. And the first that you see in the passage is this heed uh, or, or the need to heed the call to virtue. Heed the call to virtue. You have been called to this. This is who you are to be. You can see it in the text. Right before this, when Paul talks to 
about older men. He says, this is what they are to be. And then he gets to older women. This is what they are to be. This is what you should strive for. You can see it. It's not a suggestion. It's a call. Now, your personality and context and marriage culture could present this in a way that's really different than somebody else. Like you could do it in your context way differently than these folks over here would do it in theirs and way differently than they would do it in theirs. And certainly different than somebody would have done it 200 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. But the essence is the same. The principle is the same. You should be a high character person. You should be a woman of virtue. You should be a man of virtue. We'll get to that on Father's Day. But you should be a woman of virtue. He lays out these qualities of moral excellence with the idea that you would be inspired by that. And so, there are people who have different perspectives on this. Nice. <laughs> there are people who have different perspectives on this, right? And uh, so some hear this and they go, oh, well, you're calling us to do this. I'm under the big thumb. I'm being oppressed. Others hear this and say, I'm inspired to be a person, a woman in particular, called by God to grow and strive and be the best version of myself I can possibly be. And I don't, I don't care where you lean as you start, just land in the right place. Because if you have a sense of, hold on now, am I under the big thumb? Just listen. I don't think you're under the big thumb. You shouldn't have to just casually, you know, give in to injustice or submit to injustice. There shouldn't even be a hint of that, not in a marriage. But you should, shouldn't you? Strive for the heights of what God has called you to be. Shouldn't you want to be every bit of that? And so, let's do that. Let's, like, like the idea that you would be called by God to um, strive to be the very best you could be um, it's a great calling. Let's get to those categories so we can get that out of the way. What is the difference between an older woman and a younger woman? And let with this important qualifier in the text. All right, what does Paul say? Not what does Stacy say? I think it was Philo who said in the old days, you can look at ancient literature and look at it like uh, different categories so it's relative to their context. But I think it was Philo who said that women are like 60 years old. In other words, if you looked at their life expectancy, he basically said, uh, life expectancy being far shorter back then, if you should be dead but you're not, you're an older woman. Okay, that is not Paul's category. So like you're a dead woman who happens to be alive. That is not Paul's category. If you look at it, it looks like it's in relation to the younger woman. In verse 4, you look at the context and, and it looks like she's somebody for whom her home management is in, get this, her home management is in the intense phase. Like her children are young and they're there and they're demanding everything of her. And so it requires a lot of work just to make everything go. And relative to that, who, you know, compared to this woman whose uh, home management is in the intense phase, an older woman is less intense. Maybe um, her children are out of the home, or nearly so. So she got more flexibility, a lot more experience. A little cultural note that we should point out here. We like young. You, you buy products that make you feel young, look young, 
You stay forever young, they're lying to you. Um, but you, we're, there's a whole market out there for all of that. In Scripture, though, being an older woman is actually a designation of honor. It is true that if you're an older man or woman, part of what you're showing is the effects of living in a fallen world. Right? It's catching up to you. It's showing its signs. But being an older woman means that you've run a good part of the race God has called you to run. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, not even nearly so. It does mean that if you've learned lessons along the way from your, your successes and your failures, and there's humility with that, that, that you've got a lot to offer. And there's strength mixed with sadnesses. Younger people tend to not know that those are possible. That's worthy of praise. So if you're an older woman and you don't like seeing yourself as an older woman, maybe you just have a different category for good and honorable than God does. Um, it's not a bad thing. So, all right, let's get to that. The word to older women, verse 3. He starts off and he says, we'll just run through these. He starts off and he says, they are to be reverent in behavior. That they're reverent uh, means that uh, it's an internal attitude. That it's behavior means that it's outward. It's their conduct, right? This is a person whose outward behavior is motivated by her clear internal identity. In other words, if you're going to just summarize it, she knows that she's God's. And she lives out of that. Like, I know who I am. I know in spite of all my failures, in spite of all my weaknesses, I know who I am. I belong to God because of what Jesus has done for me, and the way I live is going to be informed by that. Reverent behavior. Not slanderers. Now, you would think this would be a super low bar, right? Like, don't slander people. Usually, the, uh, when this word shows up in the New Testament, usually it's uh, uh, used to refer to Satan, and he's the father of lies. Sometimes the hardest part about being a woman is the other women. Uh, if you are, well, let me make it less personal. It is Mother's Day. Uh, a person who verbally shreds someone else says an awful lot more about her than the people she tears down. Shouldn't do that. There's this, uh, there's this uh, story of the middle, in the Middle Ages of a, of a young man who had really slandered somebody. And so he wanted to get felt bad about it, and he went to this monk to get some advice. He says, listen, I've done this. I've, I've torn this person down. I've slandered them. What should I do? And the monk said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a feather and put it on the doorstep of every home in town. And he did that. So this young man goes, he'd slandered this person, and he took a feather and he put it on the doorstep of every, every house in their town. He got to thinking about it and he thought, well, I wonder if there's something else I should do to follow up. So he goes back to the monk and he says, Hey, listen, I, I put the feathers on the doorstep of every house in town, in, you know, in front of the door like you told me to do. Is there anything else I should do? And the monk said, yeah, just go gather up all the feathers. And he said, I, well, that's impossible. They would have blown all over town by now. He says, that's the reality whenever you slander somebody. You put it out there and it blows all over town. You can't unhurt somebody when you hurt them that way. Not a slanderer, not Satan-like, we might say. 
Um, the third thing that he lists is not slaves to much wine. Now, you'd think this is pretty straightforward. Um, but obviously, a woman who is a slave to wine isn't going to be a servant of the Lord. The broader point here is to be careful about yourself. You, irrespective of, of gender or whatnot, you're the kind of person who can become enslaved. You know, for you, for you it may or may not be wine. You know, maybe it's like sugar things or whatever, but we're the kind of people who are very vulnerable to that. That's the way addiction and uh, uh, idolatry works. That's the nature of idolatry, right? You see something, you admire it, and you just think, I'm going to reach out to that thing, I'm going to grab it so that it'll serve me. And it turns out, you start serving it. It's just the nature of it. You won't be what you want to be, you won't be what you need to be, and you won't be what everybody else needs you to be, especially if, as a Christian, if you're owned by something other than Jesus himself. You'll turn around and you'll serve that. It'll be an attempt to serve yourself, but you'll serve that lesser thing, not slaves to much wine. So, so far, if you're looking at, in the category of the older woman, you know, somebody who's, whose kids are either gone or they're nearly gone right there, been through experiences, some failures and successes and all that, he says, listen, in summary, live like somebody who belongs to the Lord. Don't hurt other people. Uh, uh, don't be owned by anything else. You follow Jesus. And then out of that, at the end of it, we see the fourth thing is influence. The older woman has a very important role. She is, quote, to teach what is good to the younger women. Now, it's not a formal role. You'll sometimes see this in churches. If, uh, put it like this. If an older woman comes up to you demanding that you follow her, uh, you, that's number one, that's weird. And you should run, probably. It's not something that should be demanded. The focus, right, is not systematic theology. Like, listen, I'm an older woman. It's time that we go through Grudem systematics together. Um, it's actually to love and help the younger woman live for Christ. Now, why would the younger woman need something like that? Well, it might be a little harder than you think. Um, she's, it's nice to have a support from somebody who loves you, wants your best in this primary role that you have in this season in your life. Uh, this is where the pressure points are for a younger woman. So the family is this primary arena of the Christian life. It's where the future starts to happen. And to have somebody who loves you and speaks into you and, and encourages that is a great thing. And an older woman is supposed to have eyes to really lift up younger women. All right, let's transition. The younger women uh, lists out all these things. We're going to be here a minute. One is the counter. If older women are to teach what is good to the younger women, then you would say, well, the younger women probably ought to be teachable, right? If that's a God-given role that we want that influence, they ought to be, um, you, you want to be somebody who can learn things, right? It's a sign of humility. Uh, question, are you a teachable person or... Are you the kind of person who just leans into a situation with all the answers? Are you somebody who can hear? Wisdom, and this is true in Proverbs too, by the way, often shows up in recognizing the insight that somebody else has that you didn't think of. And the willingness to receive an idea not your own. But we only do that if we have room for such a thing. Like if We can't just assume that we know everything all the time. This is also a very gender-neutral uh, uh, virtue, being teachable. But being teachable. The second one I think is kind of interesting. 
says, I want the older women to teach and train the younger women to love their husbands and children, verse 4, right? You notice that love takes learning. It's not just a feeling for them then. Uh, this is part of what the older women teach. And that seems weird to me. At, at first blush, I looked at this and I thought to myself, what's the objection here? Isn't there an objection? And I think it goes something like this. Teach me to love my husband and children. I just automatically love my husband and children. Dot, dot, dot. At least my children, dot, 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 whom I sometimes want to, you know what I mean? In other words, like, yeah, you love them, but you don't always feel the love, right? And so one way that somebody can help teach and train is to point out the things that's very hard to see when you're right in the middle of it, right? But when you're making it all about yourself and it turns out, Motherhood isn't a great uh, way to get your identity. It's a call to sacrifice uh, out of love. Fatherhood is too, by the way. So you might say, well, men can be selfish. Yep, women can too. Uh, Men can neglect their kids. Yep, yep, sure can. Women can too. Men sometimes can live vicariously through their kids and put a lot of pressure on them uh, that will almost crush them to be exactly what dad wants them to be. Yep, absolutely. So can women. So can women. Sometimes the lesson is when somebody comes alongside you and says, listen, remember the calling. Sometimes it's harder than that. Sometimes it's somebody coming alongside you and saying, I'm going to love you enough to not agree. So I'm going to point out this little blind spot. Uh, You know, an older woman, sometimes it's easier for her to have the perspective based on her successes and failures to see what's important, see a little clearer. It's easier for an older woman uh, to see that hurting your feelings a little to help you a lot is actually an expression of love. If somebody always agrees with you and affirms uh, your decisions, especially when you're angry, is probably not a great friend. So to love their husbands and children, part of the calling. Uh, next one is self-controlled and pure. That these two are synonymous qualities. It's the third time, by the way, that in the book of Titus that the, the word self-controlled shows up. It tells you a little bit about the island of Crete and the culture there. It means upright moral character, especially sexual purity. So I'm going to sound old and stodgy and... Also biblical here at this point, okay? Uh, Expressing, what this talks about is expressing your sexual desire inside, inside the boundaries God places on you, namely your marriage. So the Bible is pro-sex, but inside of marriage. And the reason, and I can't go into all the big thing, but as we talk about sex together, uh, listen up, kids, you know, okay? Why just inside the boundaries of marriage? Because sex is too powerful otherwise. Sex outside of marriage is like giving a tractor supply company a nuclear missile. Is it interesting? Sure. Is it smart? No way. Uh, Working at home, verse 5 says, this doesn't necessarily mean that a woman is only to work in the home. And you go like, oh, you're making that up because it's 2023. Uh, Just look at Proverbs 31. The, the, the woman there has interests outside of her own home. 
But she does have important responsibilities here. This is one of the things that I think is fascinating uh, about this. The idea that we would say, biblically, that God would say, listen, inside of your home, there's an incredible amount of responsibility there. She does have important responsibilities there. Now, if you go, I just don't like how that sounds. Let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be weird to argue to the contrary? Hey, listen, you, you got married, you had a family together, and you're raising these kids, but you don't have important responsibilities in your home. You're probably basically irrelevant. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We invest in the home because home and family is important. You just try the good life without it, all right? So working at home, really investing at home. Next quality is kind. Now, kind is different than being nice. To be nice is to be pleasant. I'm not against being nice. It beats the alternative a lot of times, right? But whenever you're just being nice, you're getting along because you're not picking every battle. But to be kind is to see the person in front of you and to really want their best. To be kind is to help them where they hurt. It's the idea that you do the good things um, in your home and family, but you do those good things from the good heart, right? You love them. You want their best. So what kind of attitude? It's a good question to ask at this point. Are you doing good things, but the attitude that you're doing within which you're doing them or out of which you're doing them, is it tainted? And the, the, the point is, best you can, have a good heart for your family. Your influence is really important. And then, last but not least in the qualities, it says, submissive to their own husbands. Uh, now, I get, this is in verse 5, I get that there's an implicit understanding that we don't use the S word on Mother's Day, and so I'll do my best here, uh, but I don't want to run away from it. A lot of the Bible's focus is this, okay? So we'll talk a little bit to men, a little bit to women, but a lot of the Bible's focus is this. See to it that there's love and respect in the marriage. This is what good marriages are made of. Those are good things. They're part of a healthy marriage. But respect isn't something that you demand. It's actually something that you live up to, like Christ. And so if that's the case, as a husband, what should you concern yourself with? Well, I don't think you should spend an awful lot of time focused on whether or not your wife, quote-unquote, submits to you, whatever that means. You're not too accountable for that. You don't want to be that fragile anyway. I mean, she's probably going to hurt your feelings a time or two along the way. You do marriage long enough, every once in a while, I don't, like if you're about to get married and you think to yourself, will my wife ever disagree with me? I just want you to know, probably not, probably not. <laughs> no, it'll happen, right? So you might go like, well, okay, if I don't focus on her, what do I focus on? If, I, if it's not about me trying to get her to do what I want her to do, what do I do? Well, maybe you should focus on getting yourself to do what you should do. That has power. You lead by being about the right things regardless. Regardless. What does it look like to lead? Well, you plant your, fat, your, your flag where it matters most. What's, what's the right thing for you to be about? You lead by putting your attention and your commitments there and standing on those, no matter. Well, what if, 
What if my wife disagrees? Regardless. A holy hard-headedness. If you're going to love your wife well, and now this is true in reverse too, every once in a while you're going to have to disappoint her, but for the right reasons, and that takes courage. Uh, if you throw a fit because you're not getting what you want, your wife will probably see you like a child, but only because you're acting like one. Um, you should be, uh, uh, let me make another note. On this, because this has been distorted, a lot of times it's, it's tough. In a, in a world full of sin, anytime roles or differences or authority or anything like that comes up, there's always this pushback, and rightfully so, on the abuse of authority. And what you can't, what you can't do is you don't want that to swing so far that we don't recognize differences or authorities or roles whenever they come up. But it doesn't mean in defense of those uh, distinctives that we should just give a nod to abuse. There shouldn't be any room. You should make sure that you don't abuse your position at all. That should be off limits. Like if you are to love your wife like Christ loved the church, off limits. Absolutely sacrificial love that to your detriment, actually to your death, elevates her. Right? That's the kind of love you're called to. Let's, let's swing back the other way. What about as a woman? Shouldn't you have the capacity to respect and support someone else in his different role? I just want you to know that practically speaking, that's not a weakness. That's a sign of health and strength and practical wisdom. You're not the same. You're not. And there's a biological reality to this. It just shows up every time. Like, like if you just go, well, I want my marriage to be even, just equal. We're going to be the same. And let's just say you have four kids. And if it's going to be equal and the same, why don't you have her bear two and then you bear two? Well, right, there's a not a cultural, not a social, not a legislative, but just an actual reality that says we're probably going to have to respect our given differences. We were just born into this, right? Anyway, since that's the reality, uh, you're not the same, and his life and world and necessity is going to draw him into a life that's different than yours and vice versa, vice versa. And you should appreciate that. Have the capacity to appreciate that. Hmm. All right, so that's the call. Heed the call. Real quickly, let's do two more things. Understand the need for virtue. This shows up in the text. I want to point out, he doesn't list this out exhaustively, but I want to point out one that is not mentioned here, a reason not mentioned here. Why should you uh, uh, see the need for virtue? One of the reasons you should see the need for virtue that's not mis mentioned here is that you deprive the world. If you don't, you deprive the world, especially the people around you, especially your family among them, of the contributions, listen, that only you can make. The world is a poor place if you don't lean in with the best version of you. If you don't take responsibility for what you're called to do and what only you can do that is uh, the calling that God has given you. Only you can make certain contributions. Now, does that sound like an overstatement, like a graduation commencement speech? You know, where I'm just trying to wind you up to go take on the world, and in two and a half months you'll realize, ah, I better get a job, you know, at Arby's or whatever. No. There's certain contributions only you can make. 
Exhibit A, take you out of your family and who can replace you? Well, I think that's nobody, Bob. Ding, 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 right? And you can only do that with virtue. One of the greatest things, one of the most loving things that you can do is to become a better person for the people around you because the impact is incalculable. The people around you need you. We are poor without you, especially inside the family, and your virtue lifts them up. So that's a reason not listed in the text. But let's get to the reason listed in the text at the end of verse 5. Why should, you be, why should you heed the call to virtue? Uh, ladies, you're to be this, strive for this, for this excellent. What's the need? What's the purpose? He says that the Word of God may not be reviled. Big problem in Crete. Tells you a little bit about what's going on there. That the Word of God may not be reviled. The word reviled is literally blasphemed. So that they won't take the thing of God that's out there, look at your life, and then blaspheme God. That's why you ought to live up to this calling. The rationale behind your virtue, the godly way you live, is that um, you become a living demonstration of the gospel. You become a living demonstration to show uh, the, the bona fides of the gospel. And the failure to do this is to preach the power of the gospel and then to essentially declare it untrue by the way you live. Or, you might say it this way, proclamation without demonstration is a claim with no offer of proof, or worse, an offer of proof that contradicts what you say is true. Guess who the offer of proof is? Well, that's you. How do I know? If I'm just looking, and I'm not a believer, and I'm just on the outside looking in, and I'm curious about this Christianity thing, I'm trying to figure it out, how do I know that what God does in a person is real, that's transformative? Well, that's you. That's us. That's what he's saying. That understand the need for virtue. You're going to ordain, uh, um, you're going to ornament the Word of God with your life or you're going to detract from it. And then finally, uh, choose to honor virtue. If you're called to it, and we should see it, and we should see the great rationale for it, we should choose to honor it. There's a story of this guy who's in the hospital He's not doing well, he's weak, and his wife of 55 years is there by his, hosp you know, by his hospital bed. She's there, and he's coming up out of the fog in his weakness, and he sort of looks at her dimly, and he says, Ethel? You know, because that's what they named women back then, you know, Ethel? Uh, sorry, apologies to any Ethel in the audience. Uh, Ethel, is that you? She says, let's him know that it is. Ethel, that's you, and you're right here by my side. You remember when you were with me at, in the Veterans Hospital so many years ago, been married 55 years? And, and you remember, uh, you know, when we lost everything in the fire, and you were right there. And you remember when we were poor, you were there even then. Ethel... I think you're bad luck. <laughs> right? You expect them to like recognize, uh, so I'm connecting the dots for the little ones here, like the perseverance, the good character quality, and instead you see something else. Do you have eyes to see it? How do you honor virtue? Well, one, you're not going to honor something that you don't value. 
So you value it. You have eyes to see it. Can you see it right in front of your face? You admire it. Uh, One of the best things you could do for somebody is to admire the good things that they're about. Um, You express that admiration and appreciation for it. In my house, sometimes you show appreciation by buying new shoes. Uh, But that's just to my, you know, in my family culture, you adapt accordingly to your own as you deem appropriate. But you value it. You admire it. And you let it be known. The point is, to honor virtue, you do it intentionally. It's an on-purpose kind of thing. So if you're leaving it out, are you? Is the only time, say, you let your mom or your wife or an important woman in your life know that you really do admire the things that are admirable and that you love and appreciate. If the only time that shows up is on a day like today or, you know, whenever you, you're sorry for something, maybe you should put it on your calendar or like on your dailies, you know, those to-dos to to like grow into this more attentive, gracious, appreciative person. Because the thing about honoring something like virtue is it actually encourages more of it. And that means encouraging someone to be the best version of herself with all that brings. Glory to God, excellence in the family, and of course, that has an incredible impact on who we are as a church. And so let me just say, thank you. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and gracious. There are joys and sadnesses in the room, sometimes in the same person. And so we pray that you would bless. Thank you for mothers. We just get one. So appreciative there. And we pray that you would honor, uh, honor excellent, or, or give us the grace to honor well the excellent women in our midst. Whether mothers or not, whatever season, young or old, Uh, before, post, whatever, uh, that we would love and admire them because they exemplify the great gospel that shows your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.